of God is it's flowing. And the Spirit's moving. So let's let's pray. Uh, Abba, we come before you now with, with joy in our heart. Near the, the time of year when we remember the greatest gift ever given to man, Jesus Christ coming down from heaven to earth to be born, to live a life healing, blessing, preaching the kingdom of God, and then to end up nailed to a tree and all for us, everything, every breath of day that he lived, all for us. And so we just, we're overwhelmed by your love, Lord, by your commitment to the Father, <clears throat> just the greatest sacrifice ever made. come before you now with not just our voices, but with all of our hearts, with all of our mind, soul, and strength, Lord. And we just praise you with every fiber of our being. We thank you for our pastor, Lord, and the word you've given him, Lord, and shared it with us. We pray that we would embrace those words, Lord, we would decide to live by them, Lord, that they would be words of life, and we just thank you, Lord. Uh, there are no words describing you. But we just give thanks for the joy we have that comes from knowing you personally. You're our Savior. You're our Creator. You're our God. May you be our Lord. And we uh, just seek you first, Lord, in your kingdom. We thank you for the promise that Everything else will be taken care of. We thank you for the innumerable riches that we enjoy, Lord. For your blessing. And so, Lord, just have your way with us. We embrace you. We worship you. We bow down before your throne. We have that joyful anticipation of being taken out of here to be with you. Pray, Maranatha, come quickly. But thank you, Jesus. Thank you for who you are and how much you mean to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and worship our great King.
Oh, no.
Aren't you thankful God is with us? Amen. That gives me such great joy to know that we're never alone. Good evening, family. If you would open up to uh, 1 Kings chapter 20, we're going to be looking at uh, the first 13 verses. Now we're going to jump into Revelation chapter 20. And uh, hopefully we'll be able to make a connection between the two. Um, the title of tonight's message is, Don't Resist God's Grace. 
And that is so important because those that resist the grace of God will be faced with a judgment that those of us that have trusted in Christ will never receive. So let's look at verse 1 of chapter 20 of 1 Kings. And it says, And Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria, gathered all his host together, and there were thirty and two kings with him, and horses and chariots, and he went up and besieged Samaria and warred against it. So he initiated this attack against northern Israel, which is Samaria, and somehow he convinced 32 kings from the region to join him in this attack. And verse 2 says, he sent messengers to Ahab, king of Israel, into the city, and said unto him, thus says Ben-Hadad, thy silver and thy gold is mine, thy wives also, and thy children, even the goodliest, are mine. So I'd suggest that Ben-Hadad is a very bold, very brazen man with a bad attitude. And he wanted to choose only what he believed to be the loveliest of all the things that he, he took. There, and there's no warning. There's no negotiation. Just this giant force that he's gathering together to try to wipe out Samaria. He wanted to take what didn't belong to him. He said, it's all mine. That's Ben-Hadad's demand to Ahab. And for Ahab to submit to those demands would have been a surrender of the nation to Syria. Well, he wants to humiliate Ahab, strip him of any power and strength that he had. And the king of Israel tells in verse 4, he answered and said, My lord, O king, according to thy saying, I am thine in all that I have willingly surrendered, right? Okay, Ben-Hadad, I agree. It's all yours, all my gold, all my silver, all my wives and children. One he didn't offer up is Jezebel. Isn't that interesting? You would think that'd be the first one to go. But that wasn't the case. Ahab's overwhelmed by the size of the military that was against him. So he, he gladly submits. He's probably thinking that Ben-Hadad isn't going to demand all of it. He wouldn't have to give all to him, but he didn't take Ben-Hadad seriously. He did it in word. To Ben-Hadad's surprise, Ahab agreed to those terms, however. So the message came back to Ben-Hadad that Ahab has agreed to those terms even without a war. Look at verse 5. And the messengers came again and said, Thus speaketh Ben-Hadad, saying, Although I have sent unto thee, saying, Thou shalt deliver me the silver and the gold and thy wives and thy children... In other words, this is, this is so easy. Thinking, well, it's so easy, maybe I left something on the table. So he decides, I need to press this further. Verse 6 says, Yet I will send my servants unto thee tomorrow about this time, and they shall search thine house and the houses of thy servants, and it shall be that whatever is pleasant in thine eyes, they shall put it in their hand and take it away. So Ben-Hadad makes an additional demand, doesn't he? He's going to plunder you. We're going to plunder your palace. Anything that you value is going to be taken away from you and given to Ben-Hadad. It won't be your choice, Ahab. It'll be our choice to take what we want. Well, Ahab, king of Israel, called the elders of the land together because they were affected by this too. And verse 7 says, Then the king of Israel called all the elders of the land and said, Mark, I pray you, and see how this man, speaking of Ben-Hadad, seeketh mischief 
For he said unto me, For my wives and for my children and for my silver and for my gold, and I denied him not. And all the elders and all the people said unto him, Hearken not unto him, nor consent. So I would suggest that the elders had a little bit more sense about them. They had a little more on the ball. They said, you must reject what Ben-Hadad has asked for. And whatever you've agreed to, you cannot comply to his demands. We'll have no part of it. It's our land too. It's our families. It's our wives. It's our children. It's our possessions. Then verse 9 tells us, he said unto the messengers of Ben-Hadad, tell my lord the king, all that thou didst send for thy servants at the first I will do. But this thing I may not do. And the messengers departed and brought him word again. And Ben-Hadad sent unto him and said, The gods do so unto me, and more also, if the dust of Samaria shall suffice for handfuls for all the people that follow me. Ben-Hadad's now angry. He said, I'm going to take everything from you, top to bottom, rich and poor, you'll have nothing left. And the army that I'm going to send your way is going to reduce Samaria to dust. And that dust would be carried away by handfuls of my army. And King Ahab of Israel answered and said in verse 11, Tell him, let him not that girdeth on his harness boast himself as he that putteth it off. Well, Ahab now seems to be developing somewhat of a backbone. What he's saying to Ben-Hadad, don't be taking big, talking big before this battle, about this battle. You can talk after the battle. In other words, don't count the victory before you have it because you're not going to get it. So he's standing up against them now. Well, verse 12, it goes on, it came to pass. When Ben-Hadad heard this message, he was drinking. He and the kings in the pavilions that he said unto his servants, set yourselves in array, and they set themselves in array against the city of northern Israel. He's infuriated now by Ahab's response. So he ordered an attack with total confidence that he's going to defeat Ahab, and he's going to take Samaria. Now this is interesting. Verse 13 says, And behold, there came a prophet unto Ahab, king of Israel, saying, Thus saith the Lord, Hast thou seen all this great multitude? Behold, I will deliver it into thine hand this day, and thou shalt know that I am the Lord. Now, do you remember back when God said to Elijah, there are, Elijah said, there's, there's just one of me, one prophet left, and God said, no, 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 there's 7,000 like you. That was in chapter 19, verse 18. So one of those prophets, he came to Ahab, who's in such a mess. There's a huge army that's gathered against him. He says, what do I do? Well, God is so gracious. Here, here's a king, Ahab, as wicked as he can be. And what's God doing? He's still seeking after Ahab's heart. Still trying to break through. Still trying to get a hold of his life so that Ahab would walk with God. And so this is what the prophet spoke to Ahab. He said, thus saith the Lord. He said, this is a word from the Lord. And when I think about that, that's the kind of message that we want to hear too, isn't it? Thus saith the Lord. And we can. Because you and I, we can open up our Bibles and receive and hear God's voice. 
God speaks to us through his word. And when he speaks something in his word, that's thus saith the Lord, isn't it? That's his word. Verse 13, again, it says, Hast thou seen this great multitude? Behold, I will deliver it into thine hand this day. And he's speaking to Ahab now. He said, And you, you Ahab, shall know that I am the Lord. Now, when I think about Ahab's life up to this point, he's a wicked king. He married a wicked wife named Jezebel. There's been nothing, nothing fruitful spiritually coming forth from his life. And God says, you shall know that I am the Lord. I am going to give you victory. I'm going to direct them into your hand. I would say that's incredible grace, wouldn't you? God could have taken Ahab out at any point in Ahab's reign and for very legitimate reasons. But God is working. He's trying to get through to him. And I think it's wonderful for us to realize, you know, concerning friends or ex-friends, acquaintances, family members, leaders, neighbors, bosses, no matter how far that they may seem from God based on their behaviors or based on their beliefs, as long as they have breath, God is always working to make that breakthrough into their hearts. And his desire is that he would bring them so they would come to realize that he is God. He is the true and living God that they need to surrender to. And you know, when I think about this, it really helps my heart to remember it. Because sometimes I forget that God, even though I may have felt like I've given up on a certain person, God has not. He still loves them. He still reaches out. I certainly shouldn't give up on them either if God isn't giving up on them, and, and neither should any of us. Maybe there's, there's someone that comes to your mind right now. Don't give up on them. Pray for them. Because God hasn't given up. They still have breath. And God gives every single person every opportunity to come before him and repent of their sin and come clean before him. So we need to realize how much God loves them. And he loves them as much as me and as much as he loves you. Sometimes we don't think that way, do we? But neither of us deserve his love. We're all sinners. We've all sinned and come short of the glory of God. We have his love anyway, anyway, and that's God's grace in action, isn't it? But you know, one day there's, there's going to come a time when the unbelievers will face that white throne judgment for those that have rejected Christ. That's the greatest and unforgivable sin. And a person can be the most moral person you might ever find, kind, generous, seeming to be a good person, loving. But if they refuse to come to Christ, that person will stand judged before God at the white throne judgment. And in light of God's grace and love and the price he's paid in order to redeem us, doesn't it make sense? It makes sense to me that creation ought not treat the creator that way by means of rejection. It doesn't make sense. I had a conversation with somebody yesterday 
you know, he came in to do some work here in the building. And, you know, typically when, when they come in, I'll ask the question, you know, where are you spiritually? And have you sought the Lord? Do you know the Lord? And uh, he had an interesting answer, one I, I think I've never heard before. And he said, you know, I believe that creation speaks of God. I said, you're right, it does. Everything that you see, God has created. So he believes that God is a creator. And I asked him another question. I said, well, if you believe that God is the creator and he's done all these wonderful things that you see, he's created your, your mind and your body and, all, and so forth and all of the animals and so on, he, I said, do you, do you believe not only that he is creator, but he loves you and he wants to save you from your sin? And he paused, he hesitated, and he said, I'm not quite sure about that. I said, well, life is much greater than what you see here. There's an eternity waiting for you. And Jesus loves you. He's laid down his life for you. And he wants you to simply come to him, receive his grace, receive forgiveness, and be saved. That's his plan. He wasn't ready. And, and I get that. You know, not everybody is ready when we bring up the conversation. It's happened with you. It's happened with many people in your life, too, just not ready. But, you know, I think of how so often there's, there's people that they pass very suddenly. They don't wake up in the morning thinking, I'm going to die today, right? No. But their life can be over just like that. And for those that have not received Christ, they'll be faced with the right white throne judgment. God in our lives has dispensed grace upon grace upon grace upon grace through his long suffering in his heart of love, hasn't he? I mean, we look at the things that we see in this life around us, and it seems to be, at least seems to me, that, that wickedness is multiplying. Doesn't it seem that way to you? But you know, that doesn't choke off the love of God. The wickedness can't stand against the love of God. God's love is greater. But it requires that a person would, would hear the word from God's Holy Spirit to come to Christ. But many people have deaf ears. And the sad news is that those that perish apart from Christ and have refused his offer for salvation will face judgment. Ahab you know, you, you, we see God's grace in action in Ahab's life, don't we? I mean, God is he's trying to pursue after him, just like he pursued you and me when we were in rebellion against God. And I'm so grateful that it was his grace and his Holy Spirit that, that tapped on my heart. And one day I answered, and I said, yes. But it took a while. It took a lot of knocking. Until finally, I surrendered to the Lord. And I'm sure your testimony is very similar. Very few people at first request come to Christ, do they? Sometimes it takes some time. Ahab seemed to repent. He, he went through the motions, but his life never changed. First Kings 21 tells us about this. In verses 25 and 26, it says, But there was none like unto Ahab, which did sell himself to work wickedness in the sight of the Lord, whom Jezebel, his wife, stirred up. And he did very abominably in following idols, according to all 
things as did the Amorites whom the Lord cast out from before the children of Israel. Ahab had, I would say, crocodile tears at one point in his life. And we're, we haven't gotten there yet in the scriptures. But he never really surrendered to God. And you know, no one that stands before the white throne judgment will have an excuse for rejecting the salvation that God has so freely offered. So as long as we're here and, and talking about this, I want to explore and talk about the great white throne judgment because it's important that we all understand it. So turn with me to Revelation chapter 20. And at this point in time, in Revelation 20, the millennial reign, the kingdom age, it's, it's come to an end. The devil was cast into the lake of fire, joining the Antichrist, the false prophet, where they'll dwell together in torment forever and ever. There is a first resurrection that you know those that have died in Christ will be raised and spend eternity with Jesus. So if there is a first resurrection, it implies that there's also another resurrection as well. And this evening, we're going to take a look at the second resurrection and also the throne of judgment. So when we speak of judgment, the obvious question is, well, who will be judged? And what will they be judged for? So let's look at verses 11 through 15. And this is uh, John, the Apostle John. He said, And I saw a great white throne, and him that sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, a small and great, or small and great, stand before God, and the books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books according to their works. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them, and they were judged, every man according to their works. And death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. So John has, God has given John this, this heavenly scene, a single great white throne that seems to command all the attention. And it's a great throne because from this throne, an eternal sentence is going to be handed down by the one who sits upon it. And it's a white throne because it speaks of purity and holiness because of the one who sits on that throne. And the, the purity and holiness of the judgments that may seem severe to man, they aren't severe to heaven. In fact, heaven declares it quite differently. In Revelation 19, verse 2, says, True and righteous are your judgments. So heaven's in complete agreement with what is going to take place at this white throne judgment. Right. Verse 11 gives us a description of the one who sits on the throne in this future event. It's the Lord from whom the earth and the heavens fled away. It's the final judgment of the wicked, as we're going to see in a moment. Now, following this white throne judgment, a new heaven and a new earth will be created. And you know who sits on that throne? It's Jesus. In John 5, 22, Jesus said, again, he sits on the white throne judgment. John 5, 22, for the Father judges no man, 
but has committed all judgment to the Son, that all men should honor the Son, even as they honor the Father. He that honoreth not the Son honoreth not the Father which has sent him. So it is Jesus who judges. And I think it's very appropriate. He, he's the one that laid down his life. He's the one that has purchased mankind with his own shed blood. And therefore, those that reject his offer of salvation, those that reject his shed blood as a saving blood, he has no choice but to judge. And he is a righteous judge. Verse 12, notice there it says, who stands before the throne? John sees the, the dead, the small and great. This, this throng of people, and how many that is, I have no idea. They stand before this throne. It's all humanity that has ever lived that has rejected Jesus Christ throughout all the ages. The dead in verse 12 speaks of the wicked dead, died apart from the saving knowledge of Jesus. And, and now where do we find them? Well, we find them before the white throne judgment. And you see, family, God is no respecter of persons, and he is no respecter of persons when he saves. He, you see, he, he will save anyone who will believe in his son and trust in him for the forgiveness of sin. He never turns anyone away. And I find this amazing that throughout human history, no matter how vile, no matter how depraved, or no matter how wicked a person may be, if they come to Christ for forgiveness, he never has and he never will turn them away. I mean, we see evidence in Ahab's life. He's a man of wickedness, and God continues to reach out to him, to reach out to him, to reach out to him with grace and love. And all he wants is Ahab's heart. And that's all he wants from us. In John 6, 37 Jesus said, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will, know my, will by no means cast out. That's pretty incredible. Because I've heard people say, there's, there's no way that God will have me. Well, they don't know the Word of God, and they don't know Jesus clearly. But in some cases, people use that as an excuse not to come to him. Oh, he won't have me anyway, so I'm going to carry on just the way I'm carrying on. Then on the other hand, I believe some people believe it. But it's so contrary to the heart of God for Hebrews 10.10 says, Jesus died once for all. He died once for all. So when a person trusts in Jesus and asks for forgiveness, Jesus will never turn away a single one. And the blood that Jesus shed on the cross was shed for us and cleanses us from how much of our sin? Every single bit of it, every trace of it. Right. You know, we can look at a person and say, well, you know, based on what I see, that person has no, no entitlement, doesn't deserve heaven, but God would look at all, ma all men and say the same thing. None of them deserves heaven. But because of what my son Jesus has done in laying down his life, I will receive those who trust in me for the forgiveness of their sin. Now, to stand before the white throne judgment is not a place anyone would desire to be. There's only one sentence that's administered. And the sentence is guilty. Guilty. Not by jury, but by the one who judges who is 
Jesus, all judgment has been committed to him. And that sentence, as hard it is to hear, it's an eternal judgment. But the good news is for the Christian is no Christian will stand before the white throne judgment. And here's why. Our sin has already been judged. Praise God our sin has been judged. Judged by Jesus, he became our sin, and we became his righteousness. And therefore, you and I, we've been forgiven, and we are free from judgment. Did judgment take place? It sure did, but it took place on Jesus. That's why it's so important that every single person places their trust in Jesus Christ. But for those that have refused him, position, power, money, you name it, will not spare the judgment. Status has no effect. Kings, presidents, rulers, the extremely wealthy will stand alongside the poor and destitute, all being treated just the same. And you see, God doesn't, doesn't look at people like we do. The Bible teaches us that every single human being will one day bow before Jesus, every single person. In fact, Philippians 2, verses 10 and 11 says that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen. Every tongue, every knee, and this is a fact it's not an if. The issue is not whether all of us will stand before him. The issue is this. What will our relationship be to him when we do? Will we be standing before him and worshiping in praise? If you're a believer, absolutely. And it's going to be joyous. Worship like we've never, ever experienced before. And I'm thankful for that. And that's where I'm going to be, worshiping and praising him. I will not have to stand before the white throne judgment. Two different places. White throne judgment is, is judgment unto eternal death. There's another judgment seat too, and it's the judgment seat of Christ. Judgment for rewards. First Corinthians talks about that. But in verse 12, it, notice it says that the book's we're open. And I emphasize books. It's plural. Then he goes on to say another book, singular, was opened, which is the book of life. Then at the end of verse 12, it uses the word books again. So two things are happening here. It's like two libraries. One library consists of books. How many volumes? Doesn't say. But it's plural. But then there's a library that consists of a single book, one book called the Book of Life. The dead, we're told in verses 12 and 13, will stand before Jesus at the white throne judgment and will be judged according to their works by the things that are written in the books. And whatever this library of books is, we do know this, they condemn those at the white throne judgment as sinners unsaved. Jesus gives us an idea about the nature of some of those books. John 12, 48, the word that I have spoken, the same shall judge him in the last day. The unsaved will be judged by Jesus by the word of God and will be held accountable for the truth that's been revealed to them. And you see, the word of God, we know it's perfect. 
And it stands as, as a plumb line, a weighted line. That is the standard of God's word and it's absolute, absolute perfection. And when man is held up against the standard of the word of God, it reveals everything else that's crooked. The Bible explains this in Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And when we think about it, we're not worthy of a relationship with God because of our sin. We're not worthy of heaven because of our sin. And the word of God teaches us that. Unfortunately, many people believe, people believe they'll get to heaven on the basis that they're slightly better than the next guy. Not as bad as this one or that one or so-and-so. But you know, God doesn't grade on a curve because a single sin is cause for judgment. The only standard that God accepts in heaven is perfection. We need perfect righteousness to get there. That's why we need a Savior. And the Bible tells us that there is a great accounting that's taken place in heaven, whereby the perfection required to be there has been put to our account by Jesus. Praise God. You know, he looks at you and I as righteous. He looks at you and I justified, just as if we've never sinned. Why? Because our sin has been dealt with already. The only thing that will exclude a person from heaven is failure to believe in God's provision, the payment of sin through Jesus Christ. God made it clear. He defined the requirements. Yet you've spoken with people, I'm sure, as I have as well, people say, well, Jesus cannot be the only way. There's, gotta be, there's so many wonderful people in the world, and yes, there are. But do they know Jesus? Why would God judge somebody apart from Christ? Because they haven't received the forgiveness of sin. They've, they've come up with some other method to deal with their sin in their own minds and in their own hearts and through good works or whatever it might be, good deeds. But God said there is one way. John 14, 6, Jesus said, and I'm so grateful for this verse because he made it exceedingly clear. He said, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. And no man comes to the Father but by me. So on that day, if a person stands before the white throne judgment, they have done so because they have willfully, deliberately rejected God's plan of salvation through Jesus Christ, saying, I refuse to believe, I don't want to believe, and I believe there's a different way. Turning their back on God's way. And you know, the, the scene, it's not going to be pretty. It's likely that these books contain the record of every sin committed by those standing before the white throne judgment. This is the books. Contains a historical record of every single sin and every single name will be called before that throne one by one. I don't know how God's going to do it, but he's going to do it. And finally, you know, a person's name is called. That's not something I would want to hear. Call by name and what's recorded in that book is read. Standing before the white throne judgment, sins exposed and read, every single one, every single wicked incident, every action, wicked thought, every motive, even the ones that you've forgotten about, they'll be remembered by God. 
And I'm certain there'll be a great trembling before the white throne judgment when a person realizes they're guilty before Jesus. And there'll be no room to say, wait a minute, I, I, I can explain. Or wait a minute, you know, you, you see, I would have believed, except there was this guy who, who claimed to be a Christian, but it was a real phony. And Jesus would say, I didn't ask you to believe in any guy. I asked you to believe in me. But let me explain. There's so many churches to choose from, and everyone claimed to be the way, and I became confused. I didn't know which church to go to to become a Christian. And Jesus would say, I didn't tell you to go to a church. I told you to come to me. For I am Lord, and I am Savior, and there was no other beside me. And one by one, every single excuse would be taken away, and there will be no defense. Judgment, punishment for sins will take place. Romans 10.31 says it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And you know, when I think about it, it's not easy to get to the white throne judgment. Because first, you have to trample over Jesus to get there. You have to deny the work of the Holy Spirit that has been pursuing a person all their life. Even when a person says, no, 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 does the Holy Spirit give up? Well, at, at some point, yeah, the book of Romans tells us this. But when is that point? I don't know. Only God knows. And until that point, God continues to pursue. And Jesus, he stands in a way to block us from facing the judgment, telling, telling a person, telling me and telling you how much he, he loves us. He's a God of love, a God that cares for you, a God that cares about you. And certainly through the God's Holy Spirit pointing us to Jesus Christ. Jesus is the one that gave his life for you so you don't have to face judgment. And Jesus would say, I've already taken your judgment so you don't have to. I've come to set you free. I've come to make you a new creation. The second thing is, as I indicated already or alluded to, the whole, you have to resist the Holy Spirit that continues to speak. And you know, it takes an iron will to resist God's Holy Spirit. Yet God respects our will, doesn't he? And then he will say, I'll do it my way. Live my life as I desire. And that grieves God. Because the Bible tells in Ezekiel 18.20, the soul that sinneth, it shall die. In Ezekiel 33.11, it says, I, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked. You know, we don't, we don't serve a mean, nasty God. We serve a loving God. It takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. And he says, he pleads, turn ye, turn ye from your evil ways, for why will ye die? So that's the books, plural, that contains every single violation of God's word to be laid out before those that haven't trusted in Christ. But then... Of course, there's the singular book. It's called the book of life. The book of life contains the names of all true Christians who have humbled themselves as sinners, asked for forgiveness, received forgiveness from Christ, and believed in his finished work on the cross and his finished work alone. It consi consists of those who have responded to God's Holy Spirit and have realized, I need Jesus. I need a Savior. 
and have invited him into their heart to be Lord of their life. That's whose names are written. It does not contain the names of people who think they have some entitlement to heaven based on goodness or merit or works. And a beautiful thing about this book of life is that the only thing that's recorded is your name. Just your name. If you belong to Jesus, it's just your name. You see, nothing else, you can trail nothing else into heaven. Nothing that you and I have done. There will be no remembrance of our sins. We remember them now. God remembers them all. But when that book, the book of life, is opened, it's just the name. The glorious, blood-bought name of a person. Hebrews 10, 17 says, Their sins and iniquity I will remember no more. It's already done. Jesus dealt with it on the cross. Just your name will be written, which means you, who you are in Christ. There's no history. There's no addendums. There's no attachments. There's no footnotes. Just your name. And it means that you belong to Jesus. Verse 13 tells us that the sea gave up the dead which were in it. I believe that to mean that the unsaved who died at sea, whose bodies have never been recovered, they're not exempt from the judgment. Everyone will stand before Jesus at the white throne judgment, those that have rejected him. And I think it's important for us to realize that, and this might come as a bit of a surprise to you, no one will ever end up in hell because of, of their sins. No one will end up in the lake of fire because of their sins or because we're sinners. And here's why I say that. Everyone is a sinner, but not everyone ends up in the lake of fire. And the reason that some people end up in eternal judgment is failure to do the one great thing that brings forgiveness for their sins, and that is to trust in Jesus Christ as Savior. It's the one great thing, the one great sin, rejection of the Savior, that is what gets a person into the lake of fire. In John chapter 6, there was a, a crowd that was gathered around Jesus in Capernaum, and they asked him a question. And they said, what shall we do that we might do the works of God and Jesus gave a very, very simple answer. He said, this is the work of God, that you believe on him whom he hath sent. That's how a person gets to heaven, by trusting in Jesus. It's not my sins that lands me before the white throne judgment. It is a lifelong rejection of Jesus as Savior and Lord. And that is the only unforgivable sin in all the universe. Jesus said this in John 12, 48, He who rejects me and does not receive my words is that which judges him. The word that I have spoken will judge him in the last day. It's not going to be pretty. The great white throne judgment is escapable, however. God is gracious. God is long-suffering. 
He's loving and he's long-suffering and patient with every one of us, just as he was with Ahab. And God gave Ahab every opportunity after opportunity after opportunity to come to him. But Ahab said, no. And when I think about mankind apart from Christ, God gives every opportunity. And you know, sometimes we, we, we think um, when we face a person that might be, you know, soon to pass, that hasn't received Christ, and we have an opportunity to minister to them, and they haven't received Christ, don't give up on them. Pray. Maybe God would send somebody with a little bit different approach or different words, something. And that's what God would have. Or sometimes, you know, maybe you've been in a situation like I have also where you felt like you squandered an opportunity. I was face-to-face with this person. I didn't say anything. Well, none of us likes to do that. But the thing is, that doesn't change God's heart for that person. It doesn't change God's plan for that person. Who knows? Maybe it wasn't your turn to speak. Maybe it was. Maybe you failed. It's just, it just go before God and say, God, forgive me for that. And I trust you that you haven't given up on that person yet. And you can know for a fact that he has not. And as long as a person has breath, they can come to Christ. Sadly, many people will face the white throne judgment. Great multitudes. You know, Jesus said, narrow is the way that leads to eternal life, and few will find it. And broad is the path that leads to destruction, and many will go that way. And you and I have no direct control over that. It's based on the decisions that people make. But we do have opportunity. Take advantage of those opportunities. If someone spits in your face, is nasty to you, well, it's a great opportunity to pray for them. You know, we had an opportunity recently to share with a person, I'm not going to mention names, we're going to pray for you because we know a God that has done miracles in our family and he can do a miracle in your life too. And we're praying for you. And the response was, well, what you say is well intended, but it's not helpful. That's okay. We can pray. We pray anyhow because God hears. God sees. God knows. Was I offended? Were we offended? No. We're going to pray. So, Father, we thank you that we had a little detour tonight here into Revelation 20. But I do pray that, you know, eyes and ears are opened to your Holy Spirit. For you are long-suffering and you're patient. You're willing that none perish and all come to repentance. And that's your heart. And Lord, I'm so grateful that you, you have a heart of love for me. That the many, many times that 
that someone shared you with me, and I, I slammed the door shut, Lord. You didn't give up. You continued to pursue after me, and I belong to you. And I'm so grateful that we, as your people, we, we can say our names are written in the book, the book of life, not based on what we have done. All we have done is sinned, and you've done everything else. You've redeemed us. You've forgiven us, and we believe on the one whom you have sent. Father, I pray that you would use us. Pray that you would open up doors of opportunity that we can walk through face-to-face -face with people, maybe just a loving word, whatever it might be, God, just, but just give us that sensitivity to know what to say and when to say it and how to say it. We trust you in this. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Let's stand together and praise our Lord. And one day we're going to be standing before this.